0: Hi, I'm Chelsea Wills. I'm an artist, mother, writer, and the person who asks a lot of the questions around here at Full Moon. I will be talking about what it means to live a creative life and why that matters right now. We will be hearing the stories of people who actually live creative lives, why they do it, and what it means. This podcast is part of a bigger project called Full Moon. Full Moon is an experiment in creative living for and by artists, using livelihood as form. In that spirit, this show will be experimental. Sometimes the show will look like a series of meditations or audio tours. And often it will sound like conversations between people about their creative practices. Here we go. The seed keeper from the Mohawk community of Akwesasne and a passionate activist for seed sovereignty. She is the director and founder of the Sierra Seeds, an innovative organic seed cooperative focusing on local seed production and education based in Nevada City, California. She teaches creative seed training immersions around the country within tribal and small farming communities. She weaves stories of seeds, food, culture, and sacred earth stewardship on her blog, Seed Songs. Follow her seed journeys at sierraseeds.com org. Let's jump in. Hi Rowan, welcome to the show. Nice to be talking to you today. Great, thanks for having me. Um, So let's just jump in and uh, start these interviews the same way with everybody, just asking them what is a creative life for you?
1: Well that's a really beautiful question and you know my, my life is really guided by the seeds, which are really the embodiment of the most creative potential that we could, you know, even envision on this earth that we live on, and so a lot of my particular work is really inspired by the, you know, the, the embodied potential and creativity within the seeds. Um, I really try and make my life's work be um, inspired by those kind of natural life cycles and rhythms that the seeds reflect back to me. So, um, having that time in the deep winter. To cocoon and to, you know, kind of gestate these creative ideas that want to sprout in my life, and then, you know, as we move into spring, uh, dancing that edge between my winter life of writing and um, listening and creating and in conversation. You we do a lot of collaborative work in the winter with a lot of the folks I work with, uh, moving into creati- creativity with the land. You know, working with our hands in the soil. Um, here on the farm, and then as we move through the seasons, that creativity continues to kind of sh- shapeshift and take different forms in the way that I'm able to express it. But I do think that as a woman, um, one of our greatest capacities is our ability to be creative and to you know bring life forth with our with our hands and bring things into being. And so creativity is always this underlying current with whatever work that I'm in. You know, making certain that even just an Instagram post or a blog post or a a speech that I'm invited to give is infused with a creative way of speaking, you know, always trying to bring that eloquence in and that creativity to inspire, you know, because I see that my life is a love poem to the things that give me life. And so I try and make that be a part of the way I move in the world.
0: I love that idea that that phrase, your life as a love poem has stuck with me so much over, you know, over following you and following your teachings. Um, I'm curious about what, like, why does your work, where does your work fit in this moment of now? Um, I mean, you live now, but I think it feels particularly poignant to me as this bringing together of worlds, and I just love to hear a little more about that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, my the work that has been revealed to me is my life's work. Um, I've been on this path, following the seeds and their guidance for over twenty years, and has really illuminated and reflected a, a journey for me that I feel like is significantly important in the larger world that we find ourselves in, in 2019, which is that the seeds and restoring and rehydrating relationship to the earth and to the foods and seeds that nourish us and their relationship and interconnectedness to the cultural traditions from which they sprang and that beautiful co-evolutionary dance that humans and plants have been in since time immemorial. Rehydrating that and restoring that in my life has helped me to find my way home. And I say home meaning a greater sense of my place in the world, um, and my sense of who I am as an Indigenous woman in this contemporary time that we find ourselves in, and has really helped me to uh, find greater depth of connection, uh, and has helped restored my capacity to find more intimacy in my life with the world around me. and I think that the heart of of my work is around that reverent love and care that we have for the world around us. And what's lacking in the world right now is is that love and care. Um, we have a, a larger, dominant culture that is a culture of disconnection and is a culture of of I guess a lot of, of the grief of disconnection. And so I think. The journey, my own personal journey um, to find my way home um, to a sense of belonging and a sense of identity um, by following um, this invitation by the seeds and the land to to reconnect and restore, I think is, I can see that being necessary for so many people individually, for communities, um, for our regions, our watersheds and our nations is to make a more concerted and intentional journey um, to find our way back into some semblance of sane culture that is honoring uh, our interdependence with the natural world around us. And so my work is a larger invitation to people to look at where they stand in the current moment um, and really look at their connection to food and seed and land and really tug on threads of connection of ways in which we can invite a culture of belonging back into our food system and look at food systems change and the way that we engage with the land as a way to increase that culture of belonging and to just increase a greater sense of connection. And I've been so fortunate to be to work with people from many different backgrounds who've felt a, a lot of meaning and created a lot of depth in their life by making really significant efforts to restore those relationships to the land and to food and seed and what and where it begins is by renewing those agreements with them you know we are bound in a reciprocal relationship to seeds that is beyond our own living memory and that the memory of that resides in our blood and our bones and and so when we invite people to acknowledge and and remember those agreements and to make renewed commitment to those agreements that we take care of the seeds and the seeds take care of us, or we take care of the land and the land take care, takes care of us, um, I just have seen incredible transformation um, with students and people who I work with. Um, and... I just feel like that's needed right now. We need to be culti- intentionally cultivating cultures of belonging and, and a sense of connection and intimacy with the world around us. And this is just one my one doorway in. There's lots of other ways in which we can you know, cultivate that connection. But for me, this is something I care passionately about. It's part of, um, I have an indebtedness to these seeds and to the the land that has grown me into the woman that I am now. And so the only way that I could ever attempt to repay that debt is to continue to share my story and to invite other people into this way of, of relation and a way of um, you know reconnecting. Can you remember the first time you felt that? I have a very, very distinct memory. Um, I grew up in a family that was deeply impacted by the legacy of colonization uh, and displacement. Um, I'm a Mohawk woman, um, and I come from a community called Okwasasne, which is right on the New York-Canadian border. And for the last several generations in my family, we have been very disconnected from the land um, and from the capacity to feed and nourish ourselves in in a traditional manner. Um, And that was very manufactured. Um, My grandparents and great-grandparents were taken away to boarding schools and really um, put through the tools of assimilation and to really disconnect them from who they were. And and there's uh, an imposed shame that comes with that, you know, with that kind of assimilation tactics. And so I was growing up as a young woman, um, not immersed in knowing the seeds of my ancestors or the ways in which we would cultivate food. We had a very um, kind of American Life and when I was 17, I left home, kind of in in an exploration to find greater depth and meaning um, to where food came from. I was in deep inquiry around um, kind of the industrialization of the food system and industrial meat and all of these, you know, really questioning that. And I ended up on a farm in Western Massachusetts and just fell in love with with that connection to land and watching seeds sprout and that, um, I guess just that palpable inhale that you get when you see new life coming again. And it felt very old and it felt very familiar, but it was something that I hadn't really witnessed in my life. And I was able to work alongside uh, the manager of this farm on a project that had been started previously to my uh, tenure there which was stewarding a bunch of heirloom tomatoes. And that was the first time I had ever even heard the word heirloom as it related to food and seeds and discovered that tomatoes came in colors like the full spectrum of the rainbow and that there were all these shapes and sizes and flavors and and shades. And then in addition to that, that these seeds also had um, lineage and legacy and connection to particular families and to particular places place on earth and to particular lands and cultural traditions. And it really opened this, uh, this doorway of inquiry into this idea that there was a cultural dimension to biodiversity. You know, for one, I was like, Oh, it's so amazing that this biodiversity exists that I never knew existed. And then second to that, that humans and our ways of, you know, our cultural ways of being, had an impact and an influence on that. And this, you know, that co-evolutionary dance I spoke of earlier. And I was invited to take part in sowing all of the seeds in the greenhouse and watching all those plants and different varieties come into fruition. And I remember, like, there's a very distinct memory that I have of sitting on this dusty, dusty farmhouse floor in New England. And I was sorting through all these seed packets and looking at all the stories in these, in the records and in the seed catalogs. And I remember a point of having an acknowledgement of joy and, you know, I was ecstatic to learn all of this possibility in in our food world and farm world. But equal to that was this grief and this longing that kind of unearthed, that I unearthed inside myself. I was 17. And I said, well, I don't know, you know, as a Mohawk woman, I know who I am. I know who my people are. I know our history. But I had no idea that seeds could belong to a people and that we could be in relationship to a particular set of of seeds. And I didn't know the seeds and foods that fed my ancestors. And so that at that very moment, I made a promise to myself that I was going to um, follow that question and that line of inquiry. And, you know, that was 23 years ago when it, I'm still on that path of inquiry to um, deepen my relationship with the foods and seeds of my ancestors. I, I went out on multiple trips back home to talk with elders and uh, community members about uh, some of our heirloom seeds and, uh, and many of them entrusted me with beautiful bundles of seed and I've just been continuing to grow them ever since. And I always tell people when I tell that story, I say, um, I've always thought of myself all these years as growing this bundle of seeds, but really the seeds were growing me and really took me through a very unconventional rites of passage, and those seeds were my teachers, and they were my trellis of hope when when everything seemed to be, you know, going wrong in the world, and there were so many things that were, you know, that I was distraught over in the way that this, you know, in the environment, in the way that there was leadership in this country. They've always kind of brought me back to a focus point that I can serve and that I can make change through this particular, you know, avenue of service. And so yeah, again, I'm forever indebted to them for being my teachers. So I just continue to try and share that love and appreciation with others in my midst.
0: Something that strikes me so much when you talk about it is is you talking about your body. Um and I think about you know, so many other acts of resistance and love as, as they exist right now and how bodies are not paradoxical, right? There are sites where things actually, many things happen at once and um, I don't know if that just really touches me to, to
1: that feels like a coming home, you know, the, to, to know that we are not living paradoxes. Yeah, Absolutely. Exactly. No, and and something else to speak to that, you know, in terms of in my body is that you know we talk a lot in these times in when we look at social justice. and I mean we look at food justice and land justice. We're talking a lot about, you know we use the word decolonize, right? and and i I, I appreciate that people are looking through that lens, but I also think that we need to come up with a better <laughs> term for for that because part of us, Um, re-indigenizing or you know coming back home to what is true now to what is what is it what is true to be an indigenous person now right now is that it's a it's a it's a mix of remembering um, what has been in the past and also cultivating a space in our inside of ourselves of something that has never been seen before right and um part of this practice and this process of um, coming home and belonging in a in a deeper way in this world is multi-sensory and it and it lives within our bodies and so that's why working with seeds and food is such a powerful uh, way to remember and to um, have a greater sense of our belonging and our our interdependence, is because these foods and seeds, they go inside of our bodies, like we ingest them, and and they carry memory and prayer, and a vision from the past, and also uh, an anticipation of what's coming. You know, they're so responsive, these plants and seeds. And so they go inside of our own bodies, and they, they work into places that we can't have access to through our minds, or through any other of our you know, senses. They just, they go in and they do the work inside of us. And so that's why I'm such a huge proponent of the food sovereignty movement as a a driving force or a really important aspect of cultural revitalization and the healing that comes with that around intergenerational trauma is that these foods and seeds can inform us on a level inside of our bodies um, that we can't necessarily access through other means. Um, And so they become really powerful allies in our, in our healing process.
0: I have so many questions about time with that, because that just opens up this whole idea that time doesn't really run one direction. Yeah. But um, maybe could you talk about this, this thing that I've heard you say that the seeds are borrowed from our children in order to feed and share cultural teachings.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I think. What does that mean? Yeah, I think that it's uh, it's something that I share often because I think it does invite us who are so impacted and influenced by the dominant linear construct of time and also the dominant understanding of um, proprietary relationship to the natural world. And I think in some ways it really challenges us to think differently about our role in stewarding life and taking care of life. Um, You could, when I say, we do not own the seeds, we borrow them from our children. You know, you could put in other words, too. You could say, we do not own the land, we borrow it from our children. And it just puts us in a different frame of mind and a frame of being that acknowledges our responsibility to care for those um, relations in our life, um, not in a way that we own them or that they owe us anything or in any sense of entitlement but that it's our responsibility to make sure that those things are well taken care of, to feed those beyond a time of our own. Um, So for instance, I speak often about the bundle that was handed to me, the bundle of knowledge and seeds and connection. Um, When I received it as, you know, in terms of my understanding of what it means to be Mohawk right now, um, it was, um, it was pretty sparse. Like there was not a whole lot of things in that bundle um, aside from you know, some family connections, some memories, but there was a lot of pain and heartache and grief and trauma in that bundle too. Um, but it is our responsibility to take um, this life of ours and to make sure that that bundle of knowledge and responsibilities and um, seeds and things is like be- better off than when we received it. And, and we're in a place now, um, our parents and our grandparents and our great-grandparents, they went through incredible, like unspeakable adversities. Um, so it's not by their own fault that they were unable to pass certain things down to us. Um, but in this time of the great healing that I see is, is happening, um, that it is our, it is uh, it is a privilege to be able to, um, you know, to be able to carry these things and to know these things. And so then with privilege comes a responsibility to make sure that those are, you um, made available for our children, you know, into the future. And it was because of the foresightedness of many elders and now ancestors um, that I even have seeds um, to grow on my farm and that nourish me and my family here. And so, you know, as a as a means to um, pay that debt um, to those ancestors for doing all that they did to make sure that we have seeds and food now. Um, it's my responsibility to take care of them for the children, and when I think of it in that way, when I think about caring for the seeds, um, for to benefit those who I might not ever know, um, it it just really is a very humbling mindset, and it, and it motivates me in ways um, to be to think outside of our lifetime. Like we need to be thinking in seed time, we need to be thinking in timeframes that are intergenerational and are. More vast than I think um, the Western culture really gets us to think of. We in this modern culture, we're oftentimes asked to think month to month, or even quarterly, and maybe a year in advance. But we're not trained and practiced in thinking seven generations, thinking about how our specific actions affect, you know, our children's children, and. And so it just helps anchor me into that way of working in the world. And I always am inviting others to think of the way that they move in that same way. And it really helps us to be, to remind ourselves that we will one day be good ancestors, and but we also have a responsibility to be um, responsible descendants, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. And, you know, I think it's just that time thing is so interesting again. Right, I think about this idea of mothering, and you don't think about mothering as like what happens quarterly or something like that. <laughs> you know, as a mother, you you know you have the, that feeling that it extends way
1: mm-hmm. behind you and way
0: ahead of you, and that you you do exist in clear lineage because people have cared for their children for time immemorial, right? And um, what a what a beautiful invitation with. rest of our lives too that's so so felt i think could you explain within that that i know i've heard you talk about this idea of cultural rematriation Mm -hmm. along with that um what does that mean what what is the context of it and what what is you know people have heard the word repatriation but what is what's different about this concept of rematriation
1: yeah I mean, it's one of the biggest aspects of my work that I feel so uh, deeply, deeply committed and inspired to. The idea of rematriation, we we use it a lot in the seed realm of finding seeds that have made their way from from inside of our communities out into the world um, by way of trade and kinship routes, but also by way of theft and, um, you know, there's lots of ways in which seeds move into the world. And in this time- What's
0: what's an example of that for people who aren't in the seed world?
1: So, you know, for instance, you know, um, in times past, you know, I'll just give a little context which is that um, beyond the last 200 years in this country, um, there was not a seed company that existed. So the ways in which seeds were um, traveled from one farm to the next or from one region to the next was through trade routes. So it would be gifted or shared amongst people in a community or in between regions and between different communities. And um, that w- seeds were a part of the public commons in that way. And um, And so sometimes seeds were given... Um, to people and then those seeds then were given to other people and they just moved on their own, in their own ways. And and then sometimes there's been a tradition in this country and beyond of um, bioprospecting, right? Of people going into communities and regions and I guess extracting and taking seeds because they had certain characteristics or certain ways in which they were useful in the larger industrial food um, complex. And and so in the time of uh, the last couple of centuries, Indigenous peoples have um, been incredibly impacted by the tools of colonization. And with that comes displacement, um, assimilation, disconnection from the land. And during that time, There was oftentimes um, an inability to care for the seeds that, um, that were a part of our collective inheritance as indigenous peoples. And those seeds had moved out into the world. And in some places, there are communities who are wanting to reseed their culture. Like they're trying to get the food back, the traditional food waste back, because it has a great impact on health and vitality, not only physically, but mentally and spiritually and culturally. But in some communities, those seeds of their ancestors no longer exist. They don't exist in the community anymore because of that time where there was a lot of um, displacement and a lot of uh, adversities. And so what we're doing is that we're going into places like working with institutions like universities, museums, uh, larger seed banks, um, the USDA uh, seed bank, Uh, Seed Savers Exchange has a big seed bank. And we're going to those institutions and we're saying, um, we're basically finding seeds that have cultural um, and tribal indigenous origins and locating them and making these cross-cultural agreements and these connections and doing the work to facilitate trust and and connection between the tribal communities and these institutions and working on bringing those seeds home. Um, And it's incredibly healing work when you pledge to work cross-culturally between two, two groups of people who historically and ancestrally were adversaries um, to work together uh, with this common vision and this common purpose to bring the seeds back home to the land of their, um, to the land of origin. And so that process we're calling rematriation. So it's the return of these seeds back to their motherland, to their mother culture um, and back into the hands of the women who um, have in many uh, different tribal communities, it's the women's responsibility to kind of care for the seeds and keep them safe. Um, and so um, that that's I think where it differs from the repatriation. Repatriation in from an indigenous point of view has been the return of uh, funerary objects and sacred objects that have been taken by theft um, also ancestral remains that have been excavated through archaeological um, digs and returned back to the home community. And where I think this is so powerful is that in many Indigenous communities, my own included, we see these seeds as relatives and they're part of our cosmogeniology. They're part of our, cosmo- our cosmologies, our stories of origin. So we're directly related to these foods and seeds. And so when we begin to bring them back home again to the people, it's welcoming home living relatives in a way that's so incredibly hopeful and inspiring. And, and so that's kind of the spin, we, we used rematriation. Um, and we're also seeing not only with seeds, but we're seeing a trend towards the rematriation of, of homelands. So there's many tribes that were removed from their ancestral homelands and moved onto reservations that were outside of, of that region. For instance, the Pawnees were moved from their homelands in Nebraska to Oklahoma. Um, My people, we were moved from more central, like eastern central New York around Albany up to uh, the banks of the St. Lawrence River um, to places where the land wasn't as fertile and it wasn't easy to grow our seeds and our foods. And so we're seeing also a land rematriation happening where Descendants of settlers who now inhabit those ancestral homelands are working together in collaboration and cooperation with um, descendants of the indigenous peoples of that land and growing uh, culturally specific indigenous gardens um, to grow those ancestral seeds in, that, in those ancestral homelands. So that's also a form of rematriation that we're working on. So we have a project in the Hudson Valley that's called the Native American Seed Sanctuary Garden, which is a a collaboration between Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, which I'm a part of, and our home community of Okwasusne and Seed Shed, um, which is an organization that works on seed justice issues. And then also the Hudson Valley Farm Hub, which provided the land and the resources. And there's several other of those kind of projects that are happening like with the Pawnee and and the the Ho-Chunk. Wow, pretty amazing. Right? I know it is. It's, and okay. to me, it feels like the ancestors' prayers are coming to life again, like they're sprouting again, like this day was foreseen at some point, and now it's coming to life. Well, I have this image as you're talking about that of,
0: you know, of, of my family getting together and thinking about some long lost relative coming to visit and how you try and find out everything about them before they show up. Right. So like, what kind of food do they like? Are they like a light sleeper? So should we give them the right bedroom? You know, things, whatever those things are that are just kind of mundane, but of getting to re-know the seeds that way in the what their preferences are and what they bring and what their sense of humor of li- is like and all of those things. That just, it's um, it's so visceral, right? Mm-hmm. There's such a, such a, I don't know. It, it's so esoteric in a certain way and it's also just so real yeah. both of those things at the same time indeed, indeed um well so what are you working on now and how can how can people be involved in what you
1: do if they're interested yeah absolutely well uh i wear many hats um, i am the founder of sierra seeds which is a cooperative really focused on um uh, seed stewardship in a local and bi-regional context. So we uh, run a lot of educational programs um, here. And I love that part of my work. I love mentoring and educating and being in question alongside people, in, in, in inquiry alongside people, as we begin to kind of find our way home in this way. And I have a deep commitment to growing good seed stewards and good seed citizens people who can speak and advocate on behalf of seeds and land and connection and kind of that fertile edge between humans and, and our plant relatives so we offer a number of educational opportunities both in person here on our farm in northern california as well as um, some online offerings um, and and then i also am the program coordinator for the Indigenous Seed Keepers Network, which is a kind of a nascent um, network that has been emerging in the last couple of years. I mean, it really has been um, people working their whole lives up to this point, but we've been formalizing the network to really just create more advocacy and and solidarity in in our work with seed sovereignty within Indigenous and tribal communities. So we do trainings and facilitate conversations within tribal communities to really look at how we can increase um, the work of seed sovereignty at a community level in tribal communities. Um, And so uh, we actually just released a short video on that project today in social media. So, um, but we're, so we're doing that um, just kind of, that's why I travel around a lot is to in the winter time is to meet with tribal communities and help facilitate um, this vision of what, uh, caring for the seeds looks like in this time that we're living in, um, and help them really do an accurate assessment of you know, how they can build in the support they need to to make sure that seed sovereignty is a part of their food sovereignty movements. And I'm a writer. I'm I'm trying to write a book. You know, I'm always working on this book, kind of in the background. Um, I'm going to be taking a creative sabbatical later this year to kind of really dive into some of those stories that are asking to be carried through, um, my pen. Um, I, I have a deep spiritual connection to this work and to the seeds themselves. And I just see myself as a humble servant to them and and the messages that they want to bring forth in this time. And so, yeah, I'm always kind of working creatively to find more ways that I can inspire people to fall in love with seeds again, fall in love with their food and, and, you know, make more, Make deeper, meaningful connections. So those are some of the the hats that I wear. I also serve on the board of directors for the Seed Savers Exchange, which is the largest national, um, the largest national public access seed bank um, in in the world. Um, and so I have the great fortune of working with them on seed rematriation projects and lots of other things that help illuminate their good work in the world. So. Oh
0: well, great. Lots of. Lots of places for people to plug in if they're interested yeah. in finding out about any of those things. Well, thanks so much for talking with me today, Rowan. And um, I can't wait for the book.
1: I know. Me that too. happens someday. And, <laughs> <laughs> well, it is such an honor to speak with you, Chelsea. And um, yeah, I'm just, I'm looking forward to continuing to um, find ways in which we can echo out this message from the seeds because really, um, it really is in honor of this grand lineage of of um ancestors who made it possible that we could have all these seeds and foods um that feed us each and every day. And I just hope that, you know, this time together maybe would inspire others to make renewed commitment to deepen their own personal connection to the foods that find themselves onto their plates um, and find, you know, a greater way to be in service to them and to actively engage in that um, reciprocal relationship that we have to the plants that feed us every day. So thanks for the opportunity.